Previously on the Tony Kornheiser Show. Even at 31-9, you figure, okay, well, they're going to get one late. I mean, to keep that team out of the end zone to me was an amazing accomplishment by that Todd Bowles defense. And it was just weird to me that essentially the toughest game Brady was given in the playoffs was by the football team here in... Oddly enough. Yeah. I mean, they they had a closer game. Chris, what did you think? Yeah. Well, one, I just wanted to let everyone know I just dropped my children off at their very expensive (laughs) private school. So let me just... I just want to get that out of the way. (laughs) This is General George Washington, and you're listening to the Tony Kornheiser Show. Just makes me laugh. That that made me laugh. Okay, <laughs> Michael is here, six feet one inches away, uh, socially distanced properly on Uncle Benny's table. We're going to have <clears throat> Richard Justice with us. We're going to have Jason Lock and Fora with us. But I'm going to start. Um, first of all, I got a nice. I think I got a nice note. Where's that note that I gave you about Peter Asher? Did you leave that in the other room? Right here. Let me see that. Just toss that to me. It's hard to toss because it's six feet away and it's a piece really of paper. You really have to reach for it. <laughs> Michael Lewin, Director of Government Relations. Uh, Peter's one of our board members in L.A. I shared the Friday podcast and he would like to connect with Tony. Happy to do so via email, which is very, very nice. Appreciate that. Eventually that'll get done, although I, you know, my own ego is in the way on this. It's my ego. Sorry I ruined this for you. No, it's just it's, it's like, you know, do I want to talk to him just to tell him who I am? You know what I mean? To tell him, hey, I'm just, I'm not another dope. I am another dope, but I. You know, if only hey. there was a short question that captured this. Yeah. Do you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. And so anyway, so I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling with that in my mind. I sent him a long email about my own angst and existential crisis about this. But Can I know. share my idea now? Sure. I want you to Listen get on to his uh, Beatles radio show and do two hours and go beyond the Beatles and, and sort of go into his life, go into the records, because you're always mentioning the producers, the record labels themselves, what these records look like. And I just think that'd be a really cool listen. Um, it, it might in the sense that because I am trained to be a reporter, though I haven't been in a long time, but that training does kick in sort of subconsciously. I could ask him questions, which probably doesn't happen to him very often. I could ask him questions about his relationship there. You know, I, I said this, I think I've said this to and Nigel. probably spark memories that he, he didn't yeah. think were important. I said this to Nigel, um, if I had, and I did not share this with Peter Asher in an email, but I said that if I had one, if I was down to one question, I know exactly the question I would ask, and it would be, did you sense that you were in the company of genius with either John or Paul alone or only together? That's what I'd like to know. You know, that's what I would really like to know. And he's a smart enough guy, obviously, that he could go on and on about that. But I digress. Let me get to a couple of other things. I got this lovely card. I got a card from George Mallett from Rochester, Minnesota. And George Mallett, because Carol looked him up, George Mallett, and he even talked about this, was a political reporter and a news anchor at a variety of places, including Milwaukee and including Vermont, some southern stations. And now I guess, I don't know that he's retired, but he's living in Rochester, Minnesota. And he's a listener, an obvious loyal listener, and it's a beautiful, beautiful note card. And he has painted on the front of it in, it looks like watercolor, right, Michael? Yes, it is. Watercolor. And it says Sunrise Mallet 2021. And he says in it, um, 
It is a summer sunrise at Rehoboth Beach. Perhaps that is you and the dog in the foreground. I grew up in Delaware. Indeed, he went to the University of Delaware. Speaking of Delaware, I covered Joe Biden during the Iowa caucuses. You'll be glad to know that he called my mother during one of those interviews to wish her a happy 90th birthday. Thankfully, she had her hearing aids in and had finished cutting the grass. I thought that was very funny. They talked about (laughs) Delaware. Um, He said, I probably should confess right now that I drive a Subaru Crosstrek with a manual transmission, but my other car is a Honda. Perhaps you've seen it as I often leave it parked outside your house. It's it's, great email. It's really, really good. It's written. It's a handwritten note. And what I would like, and I assume he's listening, and I talked about this with Carol last night, what I would love, not even like, what I would love is if you painted something, if you painted that painting for me a little bit larger so that I could put it in a frame and I could put it behind me on the PTI set, and I would. Because it's beautiful. And then I'd hang it in the beach house. Right, Michael? That's your suggestion. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So George the, sh- Mallet, the shadow beautiful. that is, is supposed to be Tony and Chessy, you know, it, the X brings it right to the center of, of the painting. And from afar, it actually has a very, like, West Coast surfer feel to yeah. it. Yeah, it does. It does. But- it, the Johnny O could use this as a new logo. It's really nice. Anyway, George, um, think about it. Don't have to do it, but uh, it would make me very happy and proud to to do that, to display it. A couple of things, a couple of deaths, uh, and we always talk about deaths when they are important. Um, One particularly important in the world of sports, Marty Schottenheimer, who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease about four or five years ago and became diminished by it and ultimately yesterday in the morning died. And Mary Wilson, one of the original Supremes, the three original Supremes, when, you know, when they when they got to the place where they were no longer the primates and they were Supremes, when they got to the place where the neighborhood kids were no longer in it, you know, it was, if I'm not mistaken, Diana Ross, Mary Wilson, and Florence Ballard. And they were the three. Florence Ballard, I think, left the group at one point, was replaced maybe once by Cindy Birdsong. And um, when Diana Ross left, she was replaced by Jeannie Terrell, the sister of Ernie Terrell, the boxer. Uh, I think I have that correct. Um, And Mary Wilson... Not so much Mary Wilson individually. And I, I I was watching last night on Channel 4, and there was an interview of a music professor at Howard who was talking about Mary Wilson. And and the, the notion was that Mary Wilson's career, and I'm sure it was important, I'm sure it was important, but that Mary Wilson's career stood out alone from the Supremes. I think I have this right. And and then there was some chatter, not, not a in that show but yesterday that you know mary wilson needs to be more appreciated Uh, look mary wilson was one of the supremes it's the supremes that need to be appreciated they were a group you know they were the greatest girl group of all time and i don't say that pejoratively i say that with great affection that's what you know that's what girl groups were called (laughs) girl groups the shirelles Martha and the Vandellas, Bobby Sox and the Blue Jeans, you know, the Supremes. The Supremes were the greatest of them all. Diana Ross became an enormous star on her own. So Diana Ross is somebody that that maybe when Diana Ross leaves, uh, there will be a different sort of appreciation. But the Supremes themselves are are the center of it. The Supremes are the the ones that you appreciate for everything they've done, starting with the first big hit was Where Did Our Love Go? And uh, and that wasn't even their first hit. Their local hit in Detroit was, uh, what was it, the, When the Love Light Shines in His Eyes? Something like that. I'm close on that, I think. And they became, they became in the United States of America and around the world, but starting in the United States of America, the most popular group. They were the most popular. They sold the most songs, the most records. 
Um, everybody, there's not, and it's not just women. Every man knows stop in the name of love. Every man can stick his right arm out and go stop. In the, I mean, come on. Everybody knows this. They were enormous hits. They were larger. They were the largest group in the United States, I think. I think they were larger than the Four Seasons. Nigel, do you think that's true? I think I could make that argument. That oh, I, it was just automatic so. hit after hit yeah. after hit after, and as did the Four Seasons, but but hit after hit after hit after hit, and they became the spine and the inspiration for the musical Dreamgirls, and I think that Mary Wilson entitled her autobiography Dreamgirl. I think I'm not sure about that. Um, yes. I haven't I haven't done the reading on it, uh, and I don't mean to I don't mean to diminish Mary Wilson or Florence Ballard or Diana Ross individually. I just think that the collective was greater than the individuals. I think Diana Ross, when she left, and I would say this about Paul McCartney and John Lennon, I would say that when they recorded on their own, as great as it was, it was not as great as the group. Would you disagree with that, Nigel? I don't no, think so. No, not at all. No, I, you know. I think that certainly the union of Paul and John, and they both did have brilliant songs here sure. and there, but the two of them together, it was... Oh, genius, yeah. genius. Yeah. And, 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 and the, 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 the Supremes... Supreme. The, the Supremes were the same way, and and you you can credit Barry Gordy for everything that he did for them, and you know the way they dressed and the way they looked and the way they just hit it. You know you you can do all of that. I don't think anybody would dress like that now. In fact, if you dressed like that now, you know that lavishly, people would make fun of you, or they would think it was you were being campy, like when Lady Gaga does something like that. They would think that this is not real because it's a different time. I'm going back fifty, fifty five, sixty years, um, and and how great. How great they were and how different they were. And, and they, you know, when you talk about the notion of crossover in American music, they are, they are yes. the most prime example. I mean, everybody loved the Supremes. Everybody waited for their songs. And so, again, not meaning to diminish in any way Mary Wilson, you know, but I, I think it's the Supremes that we think of. Even when we think of Diana Ross, I think we – don't we think of the Supremes? We don't do. think of her – yeah, well, I do. I'm old enough to do that. So I wanted to mention that, and I wanted to talk about Marty Schottenheimer because that is local for me because Marty Schottenheimer for one year was the coach of what was not then the Washington football team. It was the Washington something else's. Um, and Marty Schottenheimer, Marty Schottenheimer is, in a way, the most tragic figure in coaching in the NFL history. Marty Schottenheimer is one of only eight men who's ever won 200 regular season games. His career record was 200-126-1. That's 10-6 and six every year. That's 10-6 every year. That's it. He had two losing seasons in, in 21 seasons. He had two losing seasons. Good enough to get you into the playoffs. That's all he had. And the tragedy for him was what happened in the playoffs, yeah. where he was 5-13. and 5-13. and 13. It's such a terrible record. He was beaten in two of the worst endings ever if you're on the losing side when he coached Cleveland. And he was beaten by John Elway, the emergence of John Elway as one of the great superstars of all time, beaten on something called the drive. John Elway went down the field in the last X minutes, tied the game, and then won the game you know, in overtime. And then he was beaten the next year or two years later, it was very close, by the fumble. His own player, Ernest Biner was going into the end zone, leaping into the end zone for the game tying score for Cleveland, and he lost the ball. And Marty lost those two games. He lost games. He would, he would be 14-2 and two and get knocked out in the first round of the playoffs. And what I said yesterday on the PTI show was he was the football equivalent of Sisyphus. Sisyphus is the character 
who was yeah. constantly pushing, you know, it's sort of like Charlie Brown holding the football, you know, you're going to kick the football and it's yanked away. He was the, the character in Greek mythology. It's Greek, isn't it, Sisyphus? That rolls the boulder up the mountain time and time and time again and can never make the summit with it. It always falls back down over him and crushes him. And then he gets up and he does it again. And that was Marty Schottenheimer. And it, he's every other guy who's got this amount of wins is in the Hall of Fame who's eligible. The two who aren't eligible are Bill Belichick and Andy Reid who are going to go to the Hall of Fame. And Marty Schottenheimer's not in. He's the only one. He's the only one, and it's because of the playoffs. He never got to the Super Bowl. Three of his former assistants, Mike McCarthy, Tony Dungy, and Bill Cowher, they won Super Bowls, and he never got there. He was a tough guy. By the way, one of the reasons I liked him a lot was because he was an English major in college. He played football and played football in the league, but he was an English major in college and was thinking about becoming a teacher, and he was scholarly when he spoke. He was literate and scholarly, but he was tough, and he was acquisitive of power. And he said, look, I have all the autonomy. I have all the authority. He made that clear wherever he went. He, you hire me, this is what you get. You know, it's like when Bill Parcells said, if you want me to make the dinner, you got to let me shop for the groceries. <laughs> and Marty was that guy, and very militaristic as well. No wonder it didn't work out in D.C. Well, that's what I'm going to get to. Yeah. Um, Marty said when he got to D.C., he basically said, look, you can call me anytime. I'll answer all your questions. Don't call my assistant coaches. They're not allowed to talk to you. But I'll talk to you no matter what. I'm serious. I'll talk to you whenever. And he, was, he made good on his word. So he was acquisitive of power. And he started out 0-5, which a certain Hall of Fame coach named Joe Gibbs did as well. Started out 0-5 in his first year. And he finished up 8-8, eight and eight, which meant he won 8 of 11. He won 8 of the last 11. He fired Jeff George. He said, get out of here. I can't have you. You're killing me. He got rid of him. And then he went 8-3 and three after that. And you said to yourself, wow, this guy can coach. So what happened? He got fired. He got fired by Dan Snyder. And why did he get fired by Dan Snyder? I have been told this many, many years ago. And I have no reason to doubt it. Dan Snyder had a partner then named Fred Drasner. And Fred Drasner didn't like the fact that Marty said, you can't ride up to practice in your motorcycle and stand here. I don't have, I don't have guys like you here. I don't have owners here. I don't have this. It's my practice. Get out. And Drasner said, really? Okay, you get out. And that's what happened. And everybody knows, everybody knows that firing Marty Schottenheimer was, was a terrible mistake. Again, let me read you his career regular season record, 200-126-1. I cannot defend the playoffs. Terrible. Absolutely terrible in the playoffs. But he gets you to the playoffs. You know, and then maybe maybe he gets lucky and he wins one here or there. I, I, but everybody who was around that team understood that Marty Schottenheimer was the coach they needed. He yeah. was a take-charge guy. And he, he taught players to get better. I don't think anybody hated him. I don't think any of his players hated him. I don't. I mean, I'm not sure. There's a nice appreciation by Lenny Shapiro in the post today, but doesn't deal with this Fred Drasner stuff, which I have remembered for all these years. Fred Drasner yeah. no longer with us, but he was, he was offended because Marty said you can't come to practice. Oh. Marty said, look, I'm, you know, there's one general. I'm the general. You're not the general. You know? the and Marty thought in those terms. Yeah. He, he thought in those terms. Dear friend of Sonny Jurgensen's, by the way, over you, a long period you, of time. Do you remember who his quarterback was after he got rid of Jeff George that year? That he went I, on that great run? I do not. Do you? Tony Banks. 
Tony, Tony Banks, Banks, okay. Utterly forgettable quarterback in the NFL. Yeah. And that was how good he was. And he thought, wow, if he could do that well with this terrible team, boy, give him a couple of years and really yeah. you know, good things can happen. And Marty Schottenheimer said, turned around. He, every, every place he went, he turned it around. And he yeah. turned it around quickly. He just could not win in the playoffs. Anyway, um, Mary Wilson is, is on the front of the Washington Post with a key on the front. The obituary doesn't start out there. And deservedly so to have a key. And Marty Schottenheimer is not. And that's reasonable, too. Marty Schottenheimer was an important figure in, in the world of football. And Mary Wilson was an important figure in the world. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's a difference. There's a difference there. I mean, Jeannie and I could go back and forth on this as to whether or not this. I think she would agree with me on this one. Um, so I wanted to just start the show with that stuff. What else? Did, did I leave anything out? I don't. I don't think I left anything out. But, I mean, the point I wanted to make about Mary Wilson was not so much Mary Wilson's legacy as the legacy of the Supremes. You know, it's, there's legacy is tossed around a little bit too much lately. So we will come back. Uh, is it Jason or Richie? Who do we start with? Uh, Jason? Jason, yes. All right, so Jason Lockin, four of CBS Sports. When we return, I am Tony Kornheiser. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. This is the Policy Genius ad, and and they've written it for for this month because the first note is it's the shortest month of the year, meaning you've got slightly less time to check off your February February to dos. Luckus, boy, I can't read anymore. Luckily, Policy Genius can help you kill two birds with one stone. Compare home and auto insurance rates and save up to one thousand fifty five dollars per year by reshopping. You head to policygenius.com. You answer a few questions about yourself and your property. Policy Genius takes it from there. They compare rates from over 30 top insurers from Progressive to Nationwide to find your lowest quotes. The Policy Genius team will look at all the ways to maximize your savings, including bundling your home and auto policies. And if they find a better rate than what you're paying now, they'll switch you over for free. If you're worried that March is around the corner and you've barely gotten anything done in February, take a deep breath. Policy Genius will help you make the most of this short month in minutes. Just reshop your home and auto insurance, and you could save up to $1,055. I like that they do that. They don't say $1,000. They give you a number, like a very specific number. Smart, smart. Head to policygenius.com, except it's 1055 doesn't sound like a lot. They should just lie and say $1,540. Head to policygenius.com to get started right now. Policy Genius, when it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. The pride of Mount Vernon, Iowa. Dan Byrne. Dan Byrne, singer, songwriter, composer, and painter. Just once Brady hit the turf, and now he's won the Super Bowl. Here's the ballad of Tristan Wirfs. <laughs> With the Bucks winning, I thought a song was in order celebrating their rookie right tackle, Tristan Wirfs who comes from my tiny town of Mount Vernon, Iowa, population 3,000. So here is the ballad of Tristan Wirfs. How great is this? <laughs> Plays in Jason Lock and Four of CBS Sports. Um, we'll start with this. Well, I, I should let Jason rant about the bike rack on the back of his car that he hates so much, but... We'll get him going with with, and I'll start with the game. I I I so much want to start with Dak Prescott. I was so happy to do that story on PTI yesterday that the Cowboys so clearly, you know, deliberately 
disrespected him and didn't put him in the in the hype video. But I'll get to that. Let us start with the game. Your thoughts on the game. Wilbon hated the game, thought it was the worst Super Bowl of all time. It was not great, but it wasn't the worst. What were your thoughts? Yeah, I don't think it was the worst. I, I think we've gotten spoiled to where I, I, I know, like I was born in 74, started really like the, the L.A. Rams, Steelers Super Bowls, the first one I can like vividly remember sitting on the couch with like my dad and, you know, eating salami and watching the game. And I grew up in an era where the Super Bowl stunk most of the time. And the championship games, if you were lucky, were really good. But everybody just kind of grew to expect the Super Bowl to be a blowout. And then, you know, in the era of Tom Brady, A, he's in it all the time. But B, those games are usually really, really close. And if he was involved, it usually came down to the final kick or the final throw or, you know, somebody – you know, whoever, somebody high-pointing a ball above his face mask or, you know, Buxico Burris or whatever. Um, and I think we got a little spoiled. Um, I don't think it was a horrible game. Um, the second half was kind of one-way traffic. I think when it got to 28-9 and they, you know, uh, uh, I'm blanking on the kicker's name right now, hits the 50-plus yarder. Uh, suck up, up. Ryan. Suck up. It, yeah. it, you know, I think at that point you, you could have, you know, you're closing the book on that game, and you're starting to think about the the upcoming off season and which free agents these guys lose, and you know who's got to get franchise tag, yada yada yada. Uh, but I, I think the game will resonate historically, uh, especially if Mahomes does a lot of the things that people think are, are you know he's capable of, and eventually closes the gap a little bit in this whole you know. Goat, number of rings, number of trophies deal. I think this will remain an inflection point where, okay, they faced each other, one guy at the end, one guy at the beginning. The old dude won, and that's probably going to keep the old dude in rarefied air. You had Brady winning, I believe. Uh, we get the question all the time, do you think he can get back again? I honestly do not, and I will tell you why. Um, I think this was maybe the second, I think the first one is the most important that he ever won, but I think it's the first one for everybody is, but this is the one without Belichick. This is the one that says, Hey, look, I love Bill Belichick. I appreciate what he did for me, but it wasn't him pulling the strings. You know, I'm, I'm pretty good myself and I don't think he'll be motivated again. Plus he'll be 44 years old and I've got the Rams in next year, but I wonder what you think about Tom Brady's ability to get back again. Oh, I wouldn't discount it. Um, he's just a, a different being. Um, I, I don't think he'll be any less motivated. I, I, I think he's acutely aware that he's the last guy to win back-to-back in 03-04. And he kind of has these two careers, right? It's the one where he wins three in four years, and you, you look at you know a period of time from like age 22 to like age 27, 28, and it's like nothing we've ever seen. And then there's almost like a decade lull where he's still an elite quarterback. But, you know, it's hard to win the Bleeping Super Bowl. And now he's back in a stage where you're looking at a seven-year period, and I think he's he's been to five and won three. I mean, he's he he's, you go back to Deflategate, and you go back to the age 37 season, and that's when things are supposed to start. The walls are starting to close in. Right. He's, he, he go, he's going to the Super Bowl at the same rate he was when he started his career in what was a dynasty the likes of which we'll never see again. I think if he could bookend his career with back-to-back Super Bowls, and he's going to play till he's 45. I'm pretty convinced of it. He loves the environment in Tampa. He loves the weather. He loves how laissez-faire it is. It is the complete opposite 
of Foxborough in, in geography, um, in, 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 in climate, in culture, and all of that. Uh, I, I think if he could create a mini dynasty in Tampa in his 40s at the end, oh, I, I think that absolutely uh, gives him the warm and fuzzies. And, and I think that's how he's wired. Whatever he's done is not enough. It's never been enough, ever. It's never been close to enough. So I don't, I don't think his uh, okay. competitive fire has been sated at all. Okay, let me get to the other side. Um, the Kansas City Chiefs never adjusted to the defense that was being thrown at them. They never kept anybody extra in. They allowed Mahomes on a toe that seemed to get worse as he went along to run around and run around and run around. Um, I would ask you why you think they didn't adjust, and I would think that you have to sort of, in shadows, mention this. Do you think that Andy Reid was affected by what had happened with his son and that car accident? do, Do you... Somehow think that he wasn't as, you know, focused on coaching as he normally is. I don't. I don't know about a, you know, a direct causal relationship, and and I don't mm-hmm. know that any of us could know. Um, that's obviously something between him and him. I know the kind of person Andy Reid is. I I know the the struggles he's been through with his, you know, his his oh, children. Yes. Oh, yes. Garrett and Britt in particular. And, I mean, I know it affected a lot of people in that organization. I mean, part of, literally part of Andy Reid's family and part of their Chiefs family, one of their coaches was involved in, uh, I should say was involved, was the cause of a horrific accident that has a five-year-old fighting for her life with significant brain injuries. And this is a day and a half before they're leaving for the Super Bowl, and it's right down the road from their facility. I don't know what you know what Andy Reid was thinking during that game, but the flight there, and I mean, I, I talked to people who talked to Andy Reid, and he was distraught. He was, I, I mean, I think he said, "My heart bleeds for for you know the family." I I believe that is absolutely true and i think his heart was bleeding from the moment he got the phone call about what had happened until right now and i don't know that that's one you you ever get over um is that why they didn't go to the and this is like one of the most disgusting transitions i'll ever make in my life is that why they didn't go to the screen game more is that why they didn't max protect is that why you didn't see more jet sweeps and quick you know, bubble screens for Tyree kill because they're taking away the vertical stuff. So let's accentuate the horizontal. I, I don't know. I mean, it's pretty basic adjustments that we're watching the game from our set, all kind of wondering, like, what what is yeah. what's the plan yeah. here? Is the plan just to hope Mahomes makes a play and slings it, and then when it hits the guy, it doesn't bounce off his face mask? That you know, they just kind of draw it up in dirt. Um, but they they got out coached. I mean, look, they they got whipped in all three phases. Um, Special teams, they had a, you know, a, a, a drop by the punter. Terrible. They had a shank terrible. by the punter. They had a bad yeah. special teams penalty that put them in a position to have the shank after they did switch uh, flip field position. Obviously, the defense didn't do anything special. I mean, I wasn't hearing the broadcast. I'm guessing you didn't hear Chris Jones' name called a whole lot because I certainly didn't see a whole lot. Um, you had the whole, you know, Tyron Matthew, Tom Brady thing, and then offensively, they didn't score a touchdown, um, drops, mistakes, lack of adjustments. 
and we talked about it last week. To me, the biggest thing in that game was the Chiefs didn't have an offensive line that was remotely professional grade. And you're, you're really hoping against hope that with two weeks to prepare and that group that you're putting in front of Mahomes and with the, 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 um, the types of defenders at Todd Bowles' disposal, this idea that, oh, well, he got killed blitzing the last time, so it'll happen again. No, he's not going to have to blitz. He can beat your five with his four. And he's got these tremendous linebackers who cover, you know, they're like pterodactyls. They're, they, they're, they're all over the place. They seem to dwarf the field. And when they have to play nickel, he's happy to play nickel because they have one of the deepest secondaries in the league that was getting healthy again at the right time. And they got linebackers who can run with Kelsey. And, um, yeah, it was a thing. Okay. Yeah, and I'm sure you would agree with me that it, it exposed less about Mahomes than it did about the offensive line. That it's, you know, that the team failed Mahomes more than Mahomes failed the team, right? We would be in agreement on that. It was not a quintessential Patrick Mahomes game, but he also right. was under tremendous duress. I think he ran for 496 yards yes. behind the line of scrimmage, yes. and yeah. he still was putting the ball on somebody's on face mask or on That's somebody's right. numbers or in Kelsey's hands, too, both of them, and they weren't coming down with the ball. Yeah. All right, so let's, let's move on. You had a story the other day. And um, I should tell people, you're not saying that Russell Wilson is going to get traded. You're not saying that he's being shopped, or maybe he is by now. But you said, why don't you call Seattle? Why don't you see if Russell Wilson is available? And Russell Wilson yesterday said, that's not up to me, that's up to them. This all, you put that in a stew, and what comes out is the real possibility that Russell Wilson will not be with Seattle next year, correct? It's... It's certainly a possibility. Um, I don't think the Seahawks are there yet, but I mean, basically the gist of my column was not all is well in Seattle. Russell Wilson um, is sick of being sacked 40 times a year. He's sick of, you know, the answer to the test always being just run the ball more, you know, because that's Pete Carroll's philosophy. He's sick of not really being sort of being left in the dark or not really knowing what the plan is on offense. He's sick of them not investing in the offensive line because, oh, Russ has never missed a snap, and Russ never misses anything, and Russ plays through everything. So we don't have to invest as much in that because we've got Russ. You know, Russ is now going to be in his age 33 season. Russ sees the kind of creature comforts that a Peyton Manning got at the end of his career that a Tom Brady just enjoyed by calling his shot to Tampa. He wants to be mentioned with those guys. He feels like, I can't do it all on my own, and I'm not sure if they're ever going to meet me halfway here oh we've got another offensive coordinator who doesn't really have a pedigree um you know and is probably going to be under Pete Carroll's thumb and again with a defensive-minded coach an old school one like that the answer is usually why aren't we winning more we're not running enough so yeah there's something to watch in Seattle and I think if you know Russ was on with Dan Patrick he basically confirmed everything that was in my um my column on Super Bowl Sunday and do I think Russell Wilson is, is wired to go at, go to Pete Carroll and say, I'll never play another bleeping snap for you again. Get me out of here. No, I don't think that's who he is. I don't think that's how he operates. Uh, but teams are also going to keep calling because they know there's a little blood in the water. And do I think um, John Schneider and Pete Carroll have an idea in their head of what a Russell Wilson trade would look like? No, I don't think they even want to fathom it. But everybody's got a price. Babe Ruth had a price. Wayne Gretzky in his prime had a price and they might not know what it is, but somebody might call them up and say the right thing. And it's three, three ones and three twos or whatever. 
and they might sit back and say, you know what? We, we might have to think about this one. We, we might have to consider that. And if yeah. that team happens to have a quarterback already under contract, a team-friendly contract that they think they could win with in the short term while they draft the long term, I don't know why they wouldn't consider that. And I'm long and I'm old enough to remember just a few years ago when a lot of people thought a Russell Wilson contract extension would be easy, breezy, squeezy. Who wouldn't want to keep a top-five quarterback? Why wouldn't that be wham, bam, thank you, ma'am? And it wasn't. It got a little sideways. So people are going to keep calling, and I definitely uh, will be paying close attention. The perfect landing spot for him is Sean Payton in New Orleans. It's the it's the perfect spot. I don't know what they can give back because they don't have a quarterback that he would that they would yeah, want. Yeah, the cap situation is pretty tight, yeah. and they're they're but but, but they're that's, also super creative, and uh, they are yeah. very aware. Sean always has his ears out for what's going on in the league. Let me give you one more question. It's the greatest story of yesterday. I'm so happy we did it. Um, the the Dallas Cowboys put out a hype video that everybody puts out. It's pretty standard stuff. And in it, although they found room to uh, take a picture of the offensive coordinator and a guy who was a substitute on special teams, they not once, not once took a picture and made a mention of Dak Prescott. Not once. And they said, oh, this is an oversight. Oversight, my behind. It was not an oversight. It was totally deliberate. I Stop me if you disagree at any point here. What's going to happen there? And why wouldn't you trade even up to Sean Watson for Dak Prescott? I, I don't think – I think Houston would rather have draft picks than Dak Prescott. I think if you're Houston and you're doing a full reboot, do you want a guy you know who's five years in coming off an injury who's going to be making more than Deshaun Watson? Because that's going to be the reality. Um, especially for Jerry, he's going to get a second franchise tag, right? That's, that's a must to keep his rights. And now he's going to negotiate, you know, above 40 million a year. And he's not as good as Deshaun Watson. So I, I don't, I don't know that that solves the problem. And I think Jerry is acutely aware that he's going to have to put that second franchise tag on him. And then we'll see what we could do. Um, I know that Russell's wife, Sierra, is from the Dallas area, and I, I think that's uh, mm. the idea of the Dallas Cowboys and all that connotes and the glitz and the glamour um, and an owner who is willing to spend and all that. I think that would probably resonate pretty strongly with Russell's camp. I don't know that there's a trade to be made there. Um, and I think at the end of the day, Dak gets a second tag, and then Jerry just has to swallow hard and realize that his stubbornness last year is going to cost him between six and eight million dollars per year over the next five or six years, whatever the length of that contract is. Um, that's what he gets. It's probably going to be closer to eight a year for for not agreeing to what was on the table last year. Um, but so be it. Uh, he's got the money, and it's coming to Dak. Okay, plug your podcast for us. Oh, it's uh, well, my radio show, Inside Access. Oh, I'm sorry, it's my podcast. Yeah, no, plug your radio show, your podcast. Um, yeah. Only so much time to go around. Although I do do Baldy's breakdowns on radio.com. I just tape that podcast as soon as we're, we're done this. But uh, otherwise, from 2 to 6 daily, you can find me in my attic yapping about football and baseball and um, occasionally non-sports-related things. Uh, on Inside Access on 105.7 The Fan, uh, you can listen to us live on that signal or at 105.7 The Fan uh, on the Internet, or you can listen – or, sorry, stream live anywhere – on the radio.com app. Um, and I, I hope you all have a wonderful day.
We're going to be with you a lot this off season because it promises to be a volcanic off season. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Thanks, Jason. You got it, guys. Have a good one. Thank you. Jason Lock and Fora, boys and girls. We will come back with Richard Justice. I am Tony Kornheiser. This, this is the Tony Kornheiser Show. Tony Kornheiser Show. This is a Simply Safe ad. Everyone wants to keep their home and family safe, whether it's from a break in, a fire, flooding, or a medical emergency. Simply Safe Home Security delivers award winning 24 7 protection. With Simply Safe, you don't just get an arsenal of cameras and sensors, you get the best professional monitors in the business. They've got your back day and night, ready to send police, fire, or EMTs when you need the most straight to your door. Simply Safe does, however, have an arsenal of sensors and cameras that protect every inch of your home. You can set it up yourself in about 30 minutes. It's super easy. Michael, you and Nigel set it up in our long gone studio. Yes, the forgotten studio. And you know what? Now that I'm, I'm seeing Simply Safe signs everywhere in my neighborhood. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Simply Safe professionals take over. They monitor your home 24 7. They're ready to send help the moment there's an alarm. Plus, with Simply Safe, there's no long term contract, no hidden fees or installation costs. Right now, my listeners get a free home security camera. When you purchase a Simply Safe system at simplysafe.com slash Tony, you also get a 60 day risk free trial, so there's nothing to lose. Visit simplysafe.com slash Tony. Simply is spelled S I M P L I for your free security camera today. Once again, that's simplysafe.com slash Tony. Use the code, people. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. The Tony Kornheiser Show. This is a band called High Divide. They are from Seattle, Washington. We played a song called Jaw Dropped a few weeks ago, and they sent us another one, which is called At Least I Love, I Can Love You Today. This is from Forrest and Kevin and Josh and Ben, and this note from the songwriter. I wrote the song in Peru at a backpacker hostel shortly after meeting and traveling for a few weeks with a woman who is now my wife. It means a lot, so as always, thanks for listening. At least I can love, uh, at least I love... I Can Love You Today by High Divide from Seattle. And Michael, if people want to send their original music like High Divide or Dan Byrne, how do they do it? Send us your music by emailing it to jingles at tonycornizershow.com. This music really makes me want to do a mobile order at Starbucks. Is that right? Because of the Seattle connection? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So So what did they have? They have Seattle has Starbucks and Boeing and Nordstrom's, right? Is it? Aren't those their big three? Didn't didn't those all start in Seattle? And along with um, with Bill Gates was Seattle, right? Yeah, Apple is Seattle so, yeah. as well. Yeah, yes. is that Seattle? I or is that California? I thought it was Seattle. <clears throat> I don't know. Richard Justice joins us now, and we're going to talk to Richard about personal things to begin with, which is now that you have left MLB.com, uh, what are you doing, and how how does one's life change? when there is not the order and specificity of a job. It makes it hard to watch games because previously when you watch games, you and I would be at the Super Bowl or whatever, yeah. and all you, when you watch the game, you think, okay, what does this mean for me? What it, you, know, you, you would say, Tim Sullivan you know, of Cincinnati and yep. San Diego, we covered the Masters one year together, and, and he's trying to help me, um, help me through the through through the process of the day and he would go the column has not declared itself and we would go on through the day talk to players walk the course the column has not declared itself and then some golfer would come in or do something on the course and he would punch me in the ribs and go the column just declared itself but when you're watching games and you don't have that 
it changes the experience completely. I don't have to run back and file something at 10.30 and something else at 11.30. So my life right now is uh, revolves basically around the high point of my week would be to unwrap a brand-new L.L. Bean T-shirt and try it on for the first time. <laughs> I, I'm not joking. I'll bet you Greg Garcia can tell you that, that experience, that first time with an L.L. Bean T-shirt. That's kind of the highlight of my, my week so far. I've, I've done about eight pieces for Texas Monthly's website, which I was serendipity, I think, would be the word. I was approaching, I was on final approach at MLB. I really didn't want to be there anymore. I wanted to do something else. And I get a direct message from Jason Cohen, their sports columnist, and said, would you consider writing an essay on Fred Akers, he's the former University of Texas coach yeah. who died, and, yeah. and said, uh, would your employer mind? And I said, now about that employer, and that has led to more assignments. So it's gotten me back. I wrote a, I wrote a piece on Mac Brown, which was so much fun talking to his former players. And, and on, I wrote a piece on college basketball in Texas at the time uh, for the top ten teams and men's teams in the country, and two of the top ten women's teams were in Texas. And basketball has become a thing here. So... Yeah, it's it's different, but a lot of days like today, I have nothing. Yeah, do you have th- th- those are the questions? Do you have routine in your life? Do you have a trajectory? We all understand what it's like to be anchored to a newspaper. You know, you know, everybody who's done this understands what that is. There is trajectory. There is routine. Do you have that? Uh, and do you ever feel sort of like you're paddling in a canoe in the middle of a lake and you don't really know where you're going? Well, I have friends who are experiencing who are undergoing counseling because, you know, the job becomes part of your life. When I covered the Washington football team, there was a time we took a family vacation and I checked into a separate hotel room to work on the Wilbur Marshall trade. Um, Yeah, it was Wilbur Marshall being traded to Houston. And and so it becomes to define your life. And I think there were people that worried about me. I've gotten calls, Tony, from like uh, friends uh, call. Like, I always appreciated all the help you gave me. I heard from a college friend I hadn't talked to in probably 20 years and he said i like to check in every two or three decades and it was like whoa this is what it's going to be like when i die my family's going to be getting these calls even joe gibbs called uh and uh, we had a 50 minute phone call at one point he goes you got time for one more story and he goes wait what am i talking about you don't have any place to go (laughs) so it has been different but i grew up my father ran a store that was a hardware store a meat market and I worked in that thing every day. Then I had college. Then I had work. For the first time in my life, I don't have somebody's foot on my ass every day. And, you know, like the, the beats I covered at the Post, the football team, I covered the, the, the Wizards when they you got... You covered everything. You covered when, everything. When got, you covered the O's. Chris, you covered everything. Yeah. They, could, they got Chris and Juwan and Lynn Downey. Then the editor of the Post would walk over and go, this is a big story. And I'd go... I understand what you're saying. Please leave me alone. And but so now it's kind of refreshing. Like, what do I do today? Yeah, I can watch Netflix all day long. I'm sure there's going to be a point where I'm going to be bored, uh, but I am enjoying the other side of it at this point. So at my age, 72, people say, "Well, when are you going to retire?" And right. and the truth is, well, I don't want to. I want the routine in my life. I don't know what I would do if I had nothing to do. I'd have to invent a routine. I don't want that. Yes, and and you and I remember Ben Bradley, who had more money than he would ever need. He had three Mm -hmm. houses. He had a beautiful Mm -hmm. wife. He came into the office every day. And why? Yep. 
because he wanted to be part of the energy of the newsroom. You know, you've talked about election night in a newsroom, oh, yeah. but every day, every day, there is an energy in a newsroom, particularly, you know, in a, in a, when, when things are going on. But Ben liked to come down, one floor down, and just walk through the newsroom and just feel it. And when you've been part of that energy, it's like something that it's hard for us, people like you and me, to, to tell people what it's like. But it's the greatest drug in the world. I went down to the Houston Chronicle a couple of times to tape a couple of TV things. And um, every time, like, and, and there was no one in the newsroom. I mean, the, the pandemic has forced the closure of the newsroom. Like, you walk through it and go, oh, man, I want to be back here. I want to be part of a newsroom. I don't want to work via Zoom anymore. Well, you're back in the Washington Post for the first time in many years. You had a story on Martin Mayhew and his uh, Washington football career and his law school experience in Washington. How did that feel? It felt great. And I was so happy for Martin that he got the job in the, in the Redskins, then the Redskins. Yeah, you're allowed to say that. We all no, uh In 91, when they went to the Super Bowl, Martin Mayhew and I had a secret. And the secret was he was going to Georgetown Law School at night, and he didn't want it published because he thought if he had a bad game, um, that the coaches would use it use it against him. And, and because they started 11-0 that year, he, he, it was somewhat easier. He would have Monday and Tuesday off. The, the players got Monday and Tuesday off, and he would run to Washington, one end, run into Georgetown. But Wednesdays, when you had a full day, that was your, one of your two longest days of the week. It was really tight for him getting out of there. And players would ask him, like, hey, where are you going? And if they asked directly, he would tell them. He did tell Emmett Thomas, the, the secondary coach, eventually. Uh, but he was going to Georgetown Law School at night, and he said, and after the season, um, he uh, said, go ahead and write it, you know, whatever, whatever you need, need to do. I think, as I recall it, he told me that he was going and then said, please don't write this until after. Let me tell you about this guy. He was the starting cornerback opposite Deion Sanders at Florida State, and you know what that means. He was the starting cornerback opposite Daryl Green in Washington. You know mm-hmm. what that means. There was a game in San Francisco where John Taylor caught 10 balls over him. He had a, Yeah, they're throwing at you. They're not yeah, throwing at the other guy. They're throwing guy, at you. He was a, to me, when I think, you know, that, that, that Super Bowl team had, I think, five Plan B starters. That was free agents left unprotected by other teams. Fred Stokes, both safeties, Copeland and, and Edwards. Um, but... He, he was so tough and so smart. He wasn't big. He wasn't fast. But he was smart as hell. There was a game in Kansas City. I think it was in 92. He tells Richie Pettibone, the defensive coordinator at halftime, my arm is hurting. I can't jam the receiver. And Richie says to him, just you know, do, do whatever you have to do. He played the babe. whole second half. He, also, he ended every sentence, babe, Richie yeah. Pettibone. Yeah. But, but so. Martin played the whole second half with a broken arm. After the game, <laughs> they, the trainers have to basically cut the uniform out of him. And what I remember was peeking into that training room after they had taken him to the X-ray and they were casting up or whatever they did, and Martin was on the table crying. He had played the whole second half with a broken arm. And it won in a newspaper story. He's a free agent the following year, I think. And I believe it was, it was under Pettibone. It was after, yeah, I think it was Richie's year. But anyway, he was a free agent. And he finally says to me, he and his agent, please don't call me again. If you don't bother us again, I will make sure you get the story. And, you know, players tell you that all the time. They're, they're just saying, 
don't bother me. You know, you're, you're, you're being a nuisance. So I, one night, uh, the post, somebody from the post sports desk calls and goes, hey, do this what you will, but there's a guy identifying himself as Martin Mayhew trying to reach you. <laughs> oh, and okay. uh, and I, call, I, call, I called him, and he said, uh, I've signed a four-year deal with Tampa Bay. Here's the... Here's the, here are the numbers. He did it. He, he did it. I mean, I don't know what kind of GM he's going to be, but in terms of character and smarts and people you root for, I, there's no one I, no athlete I've ever known I would put ahead of Martin Mayhew. So that's an interesting thing about that team. There was another player on the team. He was a reserve lineman, and I used to talk to him a lot, named Mark Addicts. Yep. And a- Mark Addicts went, and so Martin Mayhew became a lawyer. Um, Mark Addicts became a doctor. He went to Harvard Medical School. Right. And he became a doctor and is na- and is an orthopedist. So yeah, there was, and he just, you know, uh, about a few years ago, I did a seminar. Daryl Johnson did a seminar on concussions and things like girls' high school soccer. What is the ramifications yeah. of hitting? And Mark Addicts did part of the presentation. I went, oh, looks like you've done okay for yourself, buddy. <laughs> yeah, he did all right. You have any thoughts on Marty Schottenheimer? I had I I opened the show and I talked about his the disparity in his playoff record and his regular season record and told the story about Fred Drasner not being allowed into, um, into practice, <laughs> you know, when that was sort of the end uh, for Marty. But do you have any you, – you knew Marty over a long period of time, I assume. Right, a great coaching tree, Cower being the, the, the captain yeah. of that team. Yeah. Um, solid. He got – you know, that was – there becomes a stereotype about a guy in that he can do this, but he can't do that. But go back and look at all those playoff games and the things that happened in those games. He was a coin flip away. We used to, a couple of years ago, we would say the same thing about Andy Reid, too, right? Andy Reid yep. can get a team yep. to the playoffs, but he can't win. Yep. Marty was a great coach. He was organized. People loved the guy. He was so, he was just a solid citizen in, in, in everything he did. And he was a guy that what Marty told you, was the truth. Marty didn't BS at all, and uh, it was um, it, it's a, it's a it's a big loss. It was a wicked headline in the Post today. Like teams wilted in the play, coach whose teams wilted in the playoff dies. <laughs> yeah, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. No, that's to, that's, uh, that's the second paragraph, but it's not the first. Uh, they're deadening the baseball, Richie. They're deadening the baseball. How cool is that? Rob Manford always said. Um, the quickest way for me to get fired is to monkey with the baseball. Because when you monkey with the baseball even a little bit, you don't know what the ramifications are going to be. And I think, but they had to do something because the top five of the top six home run rates have been the last five years. And, the, and pitchers like when Justin Verlander can pick up a baseball and say, this ball is different. This guy's done this his whole life. He knows what he's talking about. You can tell me what your machine said. And I think what they've done is tried to narrow the the specifications. But basically, they've loosened the threads, but they've also made the ball a teensy. This is the plan. We don't know if that's what's going to happen. They've made the ball a teensy bit lighter, and those two things might offset each other. So while the ball may be, Justin Verlander and Garrett Cole will pick up the ball and say, yeah, it feels different. But we don't know that the – the the bottom line is going to change any at all because remember part of this home run thing is that players are bigger and stronger and the bats are harder and the ballparks are smaller and players try to get the ball in the air it'll be interesting to see you know i always heard that the drying process they they, they had all these academics try to study the baseball and they could not figure it out maybe the drying process on the hide was different and finally last summer 
uh, Rob Manfred, or two summers ago, said, look, I've come to the conclusion baseballs are made with natural materials, and they're not going to be the same every year. And I thought that was where it had ended. But I think the home runs had gotten so out of hand. And some of that is the way hitters approach it that you got to say, is there anything we can do? Now, if the top home run hitter hits nine next year, <laughs> it would not be a good move. And that was always the fear that any small thing you do intentionally to the ball is going to have ramifications you can't even begin to comprehend. I will just say this, that no matter whatever happened when somebody said this is a different ball, it's a juiced ball or whatever, baseball's position was it's the same ball, shut up. When Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer within the last two or three years said, hey, the seams are too tight, this ball is juiced, they said it's the same ball, shut up. And now we find out it's not the same ball. The Korean Baseball League last year lost one-third of its home runs. I don't think baseball, Major League Baseball wants that, but they want to bring that down. And I applaud this. Richard, I, I, I do. I think that baseball has gotten into an area that is dangerous for baseball. And, and this is what, you know, they lowered the mound. After, after Denny McClain won 31 games, they lowered the mound, right? right. Gibson the it, same year, 1-1-2. Yeah. The, the so, game has an aesthetics problem right now, and this is one of the things Theo Epstein said he would like to address. You put the smart guys in charge, the smart guys, as you've seen in the NBA with the three-pointers, what's the most efficient way to win games? Well, some way, sometimes the most efficient way to win games, that is, high spin rate, high fastball, throw 100 miles an hour, take the pitcher out after three innings, all of that stuff, get the ball in the air every time. Uh, sometimes that's not, that doesn't make for a lot of action. That's right. And, that's right. You know, like, like when I go to games, I haven't been to a game in a while, but when I go to games, I like it. But people will tell you, and the surveys show, fans watching at home on TV think, man, this is dragging. Yeah, well, so maybe this will change a little bit. I'll get you out of here on this. Trevor Bauer has signed with the Dodgers, and he released a video that I thought was very good. Not everybody did. A video he'd worked on for obviously quite some time, the culmination of which was to come out in the uniform that he was then going to wear for the next X amount of years. Trevor Bauer is an interesting and vocal and iconoclastic guy. He played college baseball, not everybody knows this, you do, with Garrett Cole. They did not like each other. They are both making a pile of dough. They did not like each other. If you were forced to be on the desert island with one of the two, Richard, who would you be on the desert island with? <laughs> I love Garrett Cole. I'm clo- I'm, I would consider myself a little bit close to Garrett Cole. I think he's one of the most fascinating, outgoing, friendly, competitive people I've ever known, inquisitive. Uh, Trevor Bauer is one of those people that rubs a lot of people the wrong way. Mm-hmm. He thought he mm-hmm. was misquoted a year ago. He began taping the interviews. <laughs> I, I watched him when he was in Arizona when he was training with a pole vault pole, thinking, this is all an act. And I watched him after everybody left. He took the pole vault pole <laughs> out to the field. I don't know what he did with it. Maybe he cleared seven feet, but uh, <laughs> or cleared 19 feet. I, I He... This is why I think it's a good move for the Dodgers, because Andrew Friedman says it's a good move. And I know Andrew Friedman, and I trust him. They have pitching upon pitching upon pitching. They basically yes, they gave him a two-year contract, $40 million, $45 million, $17 million. He's going to opt out after the second year. Yep. And will it, will it mess up what they have going with with, with with Clayton Kershaw and Walker Bueller and, and Cody Bellinger, they have and, a, and David Price coming and back, and Dave yes. Roberts, and they have a vibe in that room. Will he spoil that vibe? When Roger Clemens got to the Yankees, he un, he looked around the room and said, "You know what? 
I'm not bigger than this franchise. And if Trevor Bauer is smart, he will look around the room and go, this is the Los Angeles bleeping Dodgers. They are bigger than me, and I'm going to fit. I'm going to try to fit in here. I hope he does that. Thank you, Richie. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Richard Justice, Thanks, boys and girls. Just wonderful. We'll take a break. We'll come back with email and a jingle, and I am Tony Kornheiser. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. We have a new sponsor of the show, Michelob Ultra, so I'd like to celebrate their joining us. You know, beer is synonymous with celebrating after a big win. It goes hand-in-hand with the joy that athletes experience from victory. Because of that, there is a perception that happiness and beer only come at the end of a journey, only come after the grind, after the hard work, after the win. Michelob is setting out to dismantle that perception. By partnering with some of the greatest athletes and proven winners of all time, they are demonstrating that happiness comes before the victory and that joy is a crucial ingredient on the road to success. Even the greatest athletes in the world choose to take time off the court or field to unplug, to have a beer with friends, and find balance. Michelob is not discounting the hard work and commitment that it takes to become a world-class athlete and win championships, but they firmly believe that enjoyment and balance are crucial components of the winning formula. It's not just about professional athletes. Everyone out there should know that they can and should enjoy themselves on the road to success in life, and that they should permit themselves to have fun, smile more, and have a beer with friends. Like having a Michelob Ultra, 95 calories, 2.6 grams of carbs. It's only worth it if you enjoy it. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. Kara, Kara Orn. <laughs> Set you back a buck or two. I won't buy mine at Whole Foods Although I'm not opposed to flaunting cash I like crap soft shells Those in Omir Bagatelle Cost the earth, but what the hell At my age, what have I got to save for? So please send some more of Willamette wine to me. Also product from the cheesery. Sausage bagels, if you please. Littles listen in week after week. I tell them stuff I eat. This is absolutely brilliant by Brad Weiss. Who writes, I know by now you're all sick of me. I'm sick of me, but who doesn't love Don McLean? Oops. And that refers to one of those stories that I've told many, many times. Absolutely brilliant, Brad White. Absolutely brilliant. Carrie Care is tough to peel. Oh, God. Is it? It's tough to tough peel. To peel? Yeah. When you use Bagatelle in a, in a poem, it oh, just yeah. makes me so happy. All right, now to do the Bethesda bagels ad since we talked about sausage bagels. Yes, uh, thank you very much, Mr. Tony. Uh, we got the sausage sandwiches this morning from Bethesda Bagels. All you need to do is go to BethesdaBagels.com for the location in the D.C. area nearest you, and then pop on in, and you will be thrilled. All right, that'll do it for us today. Before we get to the mailbag, let me just say, as I alluded to earlier, stop in the name of love before you break my heart. Think it all over. Think it all <laughs> over. Thanks to our guests today, Jason Locke and for Richard Justice. Thanks to our sponsors today, Policy Genius, Simply Safe, Michelob, Ultra Pure Gold. And remember that you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Radio.com. If you get the show through iTunes, please leave us a review. Okay. This is from Dave. Is it Dave Finley? Let me make sure of, of the name here. 
I think it's Dave. Fillion. I see Dave at the bottom. Dave is at the bottom. Okay. I'm a long time little. This is the first time I've ever felt compelled to email. I am what you might call an L.L. Bean pant expert. I worked for L.L. Bean for 25 years and once even had the auspicious job title of product line manager of men's pants. Okay, credentialed. I was in the room when the idea of soft canvas pants was born and given the name Allagash. As we sat around the room describing the most potential Allagash pant customer, a 72-year-old grandfather who works in his attic and whose most rugged endeavors include walking his dog around the neighborhood and chasing squirrels away from his tomato plants was not our marketing bullseye. A 35-year-old man who spends his Saturdays chopping wood and then sits around a roaring campfire, possibly a solo stove, drinking micro-brew beers was closer to the vision. It's a great pant. It's not for you. Tony, you are the perfect double L Chino's customer. Looks good with a blazer, comfortable to wear around the neighborhood. Most importantly, will forever hold a center crease. They're also resistant to wrinkles and stains and will last forever. Now it's very important to order the classic fit. Stay away from the natural and standard fits. The classic fit is designed for older men who are slowly wasting away living on sweet raviolis and payday candy bars. The pants sit on the natural waist, meaning you are likely to pull your pants up a little higher than your son and they have a straight leg. And Michael, L.L. Bean pants pockets are fine. Don't get your dad all worked up about the potential of a light-colored pant pocket liner. He'll never notice the color for as long as he owns the pants. L.L. Bean also takes pride in having friendly people living in Maine who will answer your questions you may have over a phone call. Please call in your double L Chino order. We all know if you try to order over the World Wide Web, you may end up with a kayak rack specifically designed for a Subaru Outback. And please let Michael return your unused L.L. Bean pants. L.L. Bean does not want any unsatisfied customers. They have a wonderful return policy. On a random side note, I have a brief story that might be of interest to Michael. I heard him mention Allagash White during the pant discussion. I have to imagine he was referring to one of Maine's most favorite exports besides lobster, Allagash Beer. I went to college with the founder of Allagash Beer and happened to be the person who gave him the idea for the name. While I cannot take credit for any of the brand's success, it does get me a free pint or two whenever I stop by the brewery. Keep up the wonderful work. You guys are great. This is it's long, and it is a wonderful email. From <laughs> Rabbi Reuven Spolter. With your recent trolling for clothing and shoes and boots and candy bar, I have to ask, did ESPN cut your salary when you moved production to the attic? Has the closing of the restaurant brought on tough times that you have buying off-brand cottage cheese? Do you need the littles around the world to start a GoFundMe campaign for you, hoping all is well with Michael's trust fund? It's Reuven Spolter in Yad Binyamin. In Israel. You did from, lose the catering. I did lose that. From Nicholas Vamvis in Albany, New York. Russell Westbrook has a wide array of solo stove stories. Russell Westbrook has a wide array of solo stove stories. <laughs> Russell Westbrook has a wide array of solo stove stories. I think I did pretty well on that. From yeah, Kevin Burke that. in Chicago. I was just listening to your nephew Bill Simmons Friday podcast. While interviewing Casey Affleck, Bill pulls an all-time name drop and says, quote, we watched the Malcolm Butler Super Bowl in the same room at Kimmel's house. I brought Kornheiser there. Your brother Ben was there with Matt Damon. Wait, what? How do we loyal littles not know this story? Were there wings, dips, Wilbon's chili? Kimmel have heated toilet seats? Did you ask someone about them apples? We got to know the details of the story. Hope you will share this Super Bowl Monday. I've told this story. I've yeah. told it for years. It's the coolest thing in the world. I'm in a picture with those guys at the moment Malcolm Butler makes the interception and they go crazy. It's very, go back very cool. to Starbucks. Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> From Joe Caroni in Kansas City, Missouri, I'll be quick. 
The last show's news segment made me feel sorry for Nigel. He was trying to move the news along, and Solizza kept talking over him. Lace cut off <laughs> Nigel more times than an old guy trying to make a tough left-hand turn at rush hour. Now to my problem. I need Michael's help. I take my homemade Reuben sandwiches seriously. Oh, gosh. Corned beef from one deli, Swiss cheese from another, and then I drive across town to get the marble rye from my favorite bakery. I even call ahead to reserve a loaf. So you see my dilemma. Do I stick with butter or do I go with mayo? No, you need, for, for traditional Reuben, butter all the way, and a okay. lot of it. Okay. From James Tellus, and this is just warm and nice. My name is James. I'm 28-year-old husband and father living in Indianapolis. I'm writing you because I want to express my gratitude for your show and everyone involved, but most specifically you. I only recently was turned on to your show by a coworker. Now my only regret about listening is that I hadn't started listening sooner. Your show is such a joy to listen to and allows me to mentally escape and reminisce about my not-so-distant childhood and my interactions with my late father. His name was Jim and was a longtime news director for multiple stations around the country and ultimately became GM of one of the local TV stations here in Indy. He was born in the Bronx and raised in Queens. Quality journalism and the pursuit of truth was his passion. He was the funniest person I'd ever met. Always made you smile. Your wit, background, and comedy allows me to really sink into those old memories and bring back all the wonderful and warm emotions that came with being with him. The DC references hit me, too, as my grandmother and uncle lived in Potomac, Maryland, for a long time, and many holidays were spent in the area eating bagels and visiting the sites. All of this is just a very long way to say thank you. Thank you for simply being the funny yet caring person that you are. It comes across in your show and feels so familiar to me. Thank you for allowing me to listen to your conversations with your friends and family and be transported back to a time in my life I hold dear. Every time I hear your show, James, tell us. It's really nice. It's really nice. And, and without sounding stupid, it's what we try to do. I mean, it, tr- it tries consciously to be a familiar show which is why you bring on Richie and you talk to him about his life and why you bring on the same people time after time after time because they're all good talkers. Hi, Toby. Greetings from Melbourne, Australia. I've just completed two weeks of quarantine preparing for the Australian Open, the Grand Slam you value the least. Did you know I made the finals here in 2018? <laughs> quarantine has been tough. Just ask Novak Djokovic and Tennis Sangren. Between Novak wanting to go out and party and Tennis explaining how Trump was robbed, I've been pulling my hair out. What has made it bearable has been listening to your show and the great grilled cheese debate. I thought I would share with you how I make grilled cheese. One, I am a Grand Slam champion. This is from Marin uh, Silich. Is that how it's pronounced, Silich? Chilich. Um, Chilich. I am a Grand Slam champion. I don't eat grilled cheese. Two, I sit back and look at my U.S. Open trophy because I take it everywhere I go. Things have been tough lately, so you could send me some sketchers and a box of payday bars. would be much appreciated. In return, I can become the official Grand Slam champion you have not heard of for the Tony Kornheiser show. I hang up and listen. And one more from Joe Pearson in Indianapolis. Hey, Tony, have you heard of this website, Cameo? It can hook you up to get a celebrity to record an individual message for you. It has thousands of actors, musicians, comedians, and athletes to choose from. You want to get a birthday greeting from Smokey Robinson? $400. Or maybe you prefer rock legend Alice Cooper? $300. Still too salty? How about meatloaf for 170 Or maybe you'd rather get a roast from Jeff Ross? Funniest guy in the world, 250 The insanity of Gary Busey for just 350 The list goes on and on. But here's the thing. Where's Mr. Tony? What a perfect side hustle for someone stuck in his attic or at Uncle Benny's <laughs> table. Think of all the littles who would line up with cash in hand for their own personalized 60-second takedown from his orangeness. Back for more cash? Yes, indeed. You could probably even get Cameo as a sponsor for the pod. I can hear the read already. Use the code, people. Seriously, if the rest of the littles knew about this, they'd be begging you to sign up. Anyway, thanks for keeping up with the show. It makes my cabin fever 43% less feverish. 
Joe Pearson, Indianapolis, actually Fishers, but I was born and raised in Indianapolis, so that's what I claim. If you're out on your bike tonight, everyone, as always, do wear white. You got to harvest your nuts right now, man. The pride of Mount Vernon, Iowa, he blocks for Tumpeton. Rookie rag tackle, raised by a single mom. One sack allowed all season, just once Brady hit the turf. And now he's won the Super Bowl, here's the ballad of Tristan Wirfs. He was big in elementary, big in junior high. Ate him out of house and home, the milk bill was sky high. But all of it was worth it on that shining Tampa turf. Mount Vernon, I was pride. This is the ballad of Tristan Wirfs. Number 78. Blocking for the great one is his fate. Khalil Mack got around him once, tossed Brady to the turf. And when he finished that, he body slammed Tristan Wirfs. But worse, he shrugged it off, kept his eyes on the goal, and he kept Brady on his feet at the Super Bowl. He did Mount Vernon, Iowa proud on the Tampa turf, and now we all sing the ballad of Tristan Wirfs. Tristan Wirfs. Traditional roads are the ones that 